say, hey, hey, we're starting this recording. I'm very excited today. I'm excited every day to bring you from there to here, a podcast for space hacker. My daughter thought my intro to this podcast previously was terrible because they told people to get lost within the first 10 seconds. I'm not going to tell you to do that this time. I am going to say, if you don't have imagination and you don't like fun, maybe turn the sound down a little bit, but check the box on having listened to a podcast. Uh, from there to here is a podcast that's more an experiment uh, than a defined thing. A space hacker is anyone that thinks we haven't figured out the human experiment. And if you're looking for a narrative on where this might go, don't. Because it could go in a lot of different directions. And we feature guests uh, from a wide swath of humanity that have all sorts of interesting things to, to say and question and do. And we're trying to get a sense of what's the possibility space for what we can do with technology. So with that, let's go ahead and start. And I'm going to bring in our featured guest today, a good friend, collaborator, colleague, uh, sometimes artistic enemy. I threw that in for dramatic effect. Uh, Aubrey Anderson. And I could read his bio, but he would be bored by it, and I would be bored by it. Instead, I'll just hit what he think are the, the things that really kick us off. He's a musician. He's a hacker. He has built many things. He's sold many things. Uh, he's tried many things. He's failed at many things. He continues to just crank stuff. And for hilarity's sake, we have been neighborhood neighbors for 20-odd years and only met during the pandemic physically because a friend swore, a mutual friend swore that we knew each other. Um, so I guess we spiritually knew each other, but finally met and then I think did some of our best work to figure out where we might go in the future during the pandemic. So with that, let me bring in Aubrey. Aubrey, speak for yourself. How did you get here? Which spaceship brought you here? Hey, um, <clears throat> Spaceship, uh, spaceship internet, I think brought me here, uh, in the simplest possible terms. I thought like when I was a kid, I thought I was going to go into publishing. <laughs> uh, I went to school like for literature and like studied like semiotics and stuff. And I was like, how am I going to make money? But well, I could like work in a restaurant or I could, you know, do something in publishing. And then I got kind of suckered into making my college's website in 1995 or so, maybe four or five. Um, and I was like, oh, hey, this is another thing language can do. This seems more, more interesting uh, and then, than writing words that are designed to, to sort of convey a story. I was like, what if we just wrote words that gave instructions to computers and then have the computer kind of convey the story? Um, and that, that really touched off a whole perspective that, that I never really lost. I, like, as soon as, as soon as I saw the internet, I was just like, oh, I, I don't want to do anything else. Um, so I came by way of, uh, experimentation there. It wasn't my discipline. I'm not a computer science person. Um, though I think I'm probably better at computer science than a lot of people that have studied it. Um, 
largely because I come at it from uh, a perspective of passion. Like I, I used to take all my old computers apart and, you know, every electronic device I've ever owned, I've taken apart at some point just to see what's going on or see if I could fix it or see if I could soup it up. And I, I just approach computers uh, in a very friendly way. And I really just think of them as, as an extension of my, my own community. Um, so that's, uh, and I bring that to coding and invention and all that stuff. So go, um, when you said you got suckered into it, I feel like every great life change and particularly art project or tech project starts with getting suckered into something. So yeah, there's it, always is this. my hypothesis off or do you feel like somehow you keep getting suckered into things and they turn out to be the right thing? No, the greatest adventures always end up with the, like you wake up on a ship and you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> 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 then, hey, the ship ends up going uh, someplace fabulous. And I feel like uh, I just told a friend of mine the other day, he's a researcher at Microsoft Research now, I believe had a great career in a lot of different ways, very similar to us. And I remember the first time I thought programming was cool, was watching him and a buddy. They were, they were older college students than I was. I watched him and a buddy use Pearl to produce the entire comedy website from like a single script run for our comedy group they were doing. And I went, holy <laughs> crap. Like, and so I'm just laughing at your, your, start to this adventure and what you do was the same as mine, where it's just like watching somebody work on a college website. So here's my new hypothesis based on a shared thing. Um, are college websites the single greatest breeding ground for invention? I mean, that's, that's where I first learned Pearl. Uh, it was all, I had very little constraint and, uh, a clear mission of what they wanted to put up there. And I had to kind of figure it out. I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the greatest, uh, ingredients for making something wonderful. Um, I, I was just like listening to, uh, let's say an audio book last night about Maxwell, uh, and, and he got fired, uh, from his college, uh, um, and then rehired at another college in London and had to like, like figure it out, like from scratch and that sort of shake which, up. Which Maxwell are we talking? The physicist, the musician? Yeah, yeah, the what? physicist. Like Maxwell's equation, Maxwell, yeah. like like he just ended up at uh, um, King's College in London after having been laid off from uh, where he was trying to be in, up in Glasgow. Um, and, and you know, he met, he met like Michael Faraday and he was starting to talk about electromagnetism and, and you know, like he was just just about himself in there i mean that's that's the college website uh, of his day where you just find yourself in a situation you didn't necessarily choose but there's inspiring people around there's uh, unfettered access to the raw materials uh and hopefully there's enough uh time and and motivation to to just like get in there and fuck around with stuff until you you figure like, things out um and then hopefully you have the wherewithal to write them down um, it, it, it is going to be a weird transition, but I'm, I'm thinking of something like your, your start academically in semiotics and semiotics always strikes me as one of those odd disciplines where it's like, what is it? Where does it really sit? 
And I'm tying this to the Faraday and Maxwell stuff because I feel like so many things when you're actually on the edge of those things are, they're that kind of thing where you're like, what is it? It's a thing in between everything that doesn't quite have a place. And so I'm wondering if Maxwell and Faraday are kind of like semiotic physicists where at the time where there was no idea what electromagnetism was, they're like, let's just hover in a space between and see where it goes. No, I love it. Yeah. I mean, the, your, your, the attempt to sort of derive meaning is, uh, I, I mean, I think is the thread that runs through all that stuff. Um, I'm not sure there's much difference, you know, figuring out that like electricity and magnetism are the same thing and figuring out the, you know, mechanism with which the lazy engine of a novel is actually like trans transfers meaning <laughs> or how we ascribe uh words in context to to the sort of big ideas i mean I is think lazy it's all... engine a concept that semiotics people use what is that i've never heard that term oh i don't know where that came from i that came from uh somewhere early in my school uh thing and i i wish i could credit it better but um at one point i i was Taught, I, there, I had a professor who was talking about how the, the novel is essentially a lazy engine. It's an extremely inefficient engine. Um, and you, you fill it with instructions, but then it doesn't do anything. Like it can't, it's not capable of doing anything by itself. It only operates if somebody else actually comes in and turns the crank, uh, which is, you know, reading the words and essentially you're you're, uh, you're unpacking the, the meaning that, that hopefully was packed in there in the first place. Um, but it's, it's incredibly inefficient and, you know, as a, as a meaning conveyance or as a, a, a engine of meaning making, um, it's, it's really like just potential energy until somebody actually adds the energy that it takes to extract the meaning. That's really I, I never, I've never heard you use that phrase in all our conversations and it, and it strikes me as like pretty fundamental position for you. Oh, that definitely. You, you sort of saw that as like a, an anchor, like, and you don't use lazy, like in a pejorative way. No, not at all. I'm a big fan of laziness. <laughs> yeah. I, I, cause we can take this in so many places cause just a shared context. Is there something missing out there right now in the zeitgeist where people don't, I don't want to have a leading question, so let me rephrase this. Is AI, whatever people are attributing AI to or whatever they think it is, is it any different than this lazy engine you're talking about? I think it's highly related. I mean, 20 years ago, I wrote uh, a, a chat bot for our for the Barbarian Group in, in Boston when we first started out. We could never figure out what to have for lunch. Yeah, so I wrote a little chat bot uh, on AOL Instant Mess- Messenger where you could sort of attach um, bots of the interface there. And the the goal was just that so that we could get on the same page about what we were going to have for lunch because the company was like 15 people and that was too many people to figure out lunch. Um, and then I realized that it should have more personality. Uh, so I wrote in just one, one mechanism. You're like 16. Is, if we had a 16th person, this will go better. 
Yeah, yeah. No, there's a, it's a sine wave, right? You're, you're like, your sort of companies are totally dysfunctional at a certain volume and then highly functional at another volume and then dysfunctional again in a higher volume. Yeah. Like, and then there's like these sweet spots of like 12 people and then probably not another one till 60 and then not another one till 180. Um, and then it's just, it's just chaos, uh, in, in those middle periods where you're trying to essentially move toward another period of, of productivity and, and stasis. So it's the sort of myth of constant growth for companies, you know, where, where even at 15, you're kind of at 15 people, even lunch is a decision that is beyond the scope of that group. Yeah. It's, it, it, <laughs> you need, it, well, you need a, you need computer assistant. Um, but, but at that point I, I, I wrote this simple mechanism, which was if you typed when I say, and then a phrase, uh, and, and then you type, you say, and then another phrase. Um, so when I say hot chicken, you say Nashville, uh, or when I say Nashville, you say hot chicken, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, just so that you could talk to the thing in more abstract terms. And then I just, uh, uh, wrote <laughs> in Perl by light, uh, yeah. cause this is 2000, um, I wrote a little, you know, just a series of like regular expressions that would just parse through whatever the person had typed and see if we could match it to anything, uh, in our, in our simple phrase book. Um, and it was, it was great, uh, because it literally had the combined personality of everybody that worked there. Um, and, and I was like, oh, nobody's going to probably do this. We had like 10,000 phrases in there at the end of a couple yeah. of months. Like people just sat there and like, like plugged it in because they wanted it to know about Depeche Mode and they wanted, they like, there was like all this stuff that the people just for some reason, um, that the sense of agency about teaching the robot became this, this really compelling thing. And we uh, talking about productivity, we probably did less good work in those two months while we were teaching the, the lunch bot how to. I mean, it's really, in a sense, it was a lazy engine. It's just one thing sort of accidentally led to another. And the next thing you know, it's like, it's pretty striking to think that you had a 10,000 phrase bot in 2000. And that did, did anybody along the way get like existentially bothered by what you were building? Or did they just kind of accept it as some awesome thing? They never did get existentially bothered because there was a through line in the publication. Like it was clear where this brain came from. Uh, it, it didn't, you know, and there was this sense because everybody hadn't like anything, anytime it said something off color, you knew that somebody in the office had told the damn thing, this, this phrase. Um, and, and we, the, I think there was a sense that we all had our, um, we, we all had ourselves to blame for it, but I mean, like fast forward to now, I sort of thought that, that conversational AI would make some progress over like, you know, fundamentally like over the Perl script. Um, and really just the Perl script got better. Uh, like, like we're still traversing these huge dictionaries, um, and, and doing kind of a, a fancier math based matching, but it's not, um, I, I don't view anything that like, uh, GPT-3 is doing as particularly different from what the, the barbarian bot was doing in, in late 2000. 
do do you can you imagine another way for this stuff to work where it would have that phase change that you're looking for? Well, I actually, you know, the missing piece is this idea of of the human connection. Um, like every, every, it's like VR. Every every ten years, somebody wants to do VR. Um, every ten years, somebody wants to like remake the idea of agency and like the sort of like plant the digital agent that goes and acts on your behalf and all this stuff. Um, and then, you know, they, they implement it part way and then, you know, it's Google home and they're like, oh God, this is hard to actually get out of <laughs> this first, you know, we can't, we, it, we did stand it up, but we can't get it off the blocks. I just, I love the idea of like half built agents that become like prison guards that don't work. And yeah. you're like, I just want to get out of here because you keep following me around. Like, stop. Right, just, just leave me alone at some point. Um, but I really, from from the more recent experiments, I really miss that um, kind of home cooking thing that we had going with that first uh, aim bot where if it didn't know how to do something, you could teach it that that, that behavior yeah. right there in the moment. Um, and it wasn't, this highly complicated technical task. It was a conversational task to be like, oh, you don't know about Barry White? Well, Barry White is awesome. Here's a link. Um, and then you just move on. And it might be another year before anyone else asks about Barry White, but the system- And, and was there, then, I mean, as you guys built that, I'm just, it's such a fecund thing you're talking through here. Like, it almost sounds like your college website day where it's like, well, the goal here is fun. Right. I'm just trying to make a fun thing that helps us talk about lunch. There's nothing else to it. And yet it unearths all of this unbelievable learning for you. I think you have to build from that perspective. And I'd like if you lose sight of what is fun and engaging uh, on the creation side, uh, there's absolutely no way you're going to get anything interesting out on the product side. You If you like, like the, like your, your end product, uh, is a direct reflection on how much joy you have in the creation process. Um, you know, this is why I don't like windows. Like it's just, it's not joyful to use because it wasn't joyful to make. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like it's, it's too transparent and you can't even make it fun. Like there, there's no, there's no path to fun and that the whole operating system. But, it, but it's windows, but it's looking out windows, right? <laughs> if only like, that it's like, I always thought that icon was weird. Like the whole idea of it, since we're kind of hating on the idea of windows, it's like looking, you're inside looking out. It always seemed very confining that way. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think Microsoft has always been highly interested in confinement. Maybe like, it's do you, Seattle do you, I, I don't know. Maybe you have inside knowledge or something. Do you, do, you, do you think the people that worked on it didn't have joy? Do you think they sort of sat there going, I'm confining myself by working on it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, that's 100% absolutely true. I mean, like the whole concept of a windowed operating system was not, it didn't originate with them. You know, they were, it started as a derivative work um, without the, the knowledge or impulse that that created the original idea um like huh. he, he, what is that impulse because you've hit on that a couple of times what is that how how do i know that i've had that creative impulse that seems to give me all this agency you're talking about 
Well, I mean, like, wh why was like Steve Jobs obsessed with putting fonts in the operating system uh, on the Apple side? Like, the dude was nuts about fonts. Like, as, even as a child, like, like in his first, you know, he's a nineteen-year-old computer. And he's like, well, we should have fonts on this thing. You know, at some point, he had just read that, like, you know, humans love fonts, and the the it should it just gives it this vibe. It provides zero value compute style. You know, there's, there's no compute value to having fonts. Um, what, what is the purpose of the font and what is the, why would you, why would anybody try to do it? Um, and I mean, this is 2023 fonts on windows still suck. Like it looks terrible. Like they, they, because they just don't care. Like it's not a priority. They sort of implemented it because somebody at Adobe told them they had to, and they're like, all right, it's sweet. I don't know. Close enough. Interesting. So uh, go 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 back into it. So Steve Jobs had some some generative creative impulse around fonts that other people they look at the same thing. Literally, the idea of a font, the implementation of a font. They look at that and they go, "There's nothing here. This is just functional. It's this not creative." Value. Yeah. So what, how does it feel to you? How do you know when you've arrived at some creative impulse that isn't derivative, that isn't just functional, that it's actually a genuine creative impulse that you're going to chase? I think because they throw off more energy, like the good, good discoveries are, um, are kind of seed like in that they grow into other, um, other ideas, other implementations, other approaches. Um, and they aren't necessarily ends, uh, in, in themselves. They are the, like a good, a good implementation of anything is a means to do other stuff. Um, but I mean, in my mind, like, like that's like great tools don't, um, don't solve single problems, but they provide the framework to think through or solve uh, any number of problems. So is everything in a way, I mean, take this where we want, is everything's to you a means and there are no ends? Um, well, the end is probably, uh, something more like art or free expression or, you know, connection or, I, I mean, I think there, there is an end, but my favorite moments are when the ends and the means are kind of blurred together. Um. So that you, you, you know, like, like a great party leads to 10 other great parties. Um, like, this is why I don't like Coachella. <laughs> I, just, I mean, you always make me think of such funny things. I'm always like, haven't we all just admitted the after parties are always better than the party? They always are. Yeah. And the better the party is, the better the after party is. It's only <laughs> right. as can we skip the party? Like, is it possible to skip the party or do you need yeah, to have a party me. that's less good? No, you have to, you have to have the original mechanism in order to get to the end result. And when, when does, uh, let's follow this all the way through. Can you have an after, after party or does that revert back to party? Yeah, no, that's, that's Berlin party culture. They, they go on for several days. And when does it return? Why, when does the, the sine wave return to now we're just back at party? Yeah, I think the snake eats itself at like uh, 4 a.m. on Monday, probably.
is, I mean, I don't want to extend it too far, but is this, is that what tech cycles do too? That you just keep the after parties going until you're like, we've eaten this entire thing. It's now work. We're at Monday morning at 4 a.m. and we have to work now. Right. And Trans Europe Express is just skipping on the, on the turntable and nobody notices, you know, if it's close enough to the V. Yeah. That's Google right now. I mean, that's what's happening at Google right now. Like there is, I was listening to Kraftwerk before this because I was trying to get inspired. And it's like, if you really listen to Kraftwerk, you're like, this is kind of depressing. Like, well, it's German. I mean, it's going to be depressing. (laughs) Um, since you mentioned Google, and we already talked about Windows. Is that cool? Do the kids understand the Windows joke anymore? It's Doze. I don't think they get it anymore. Um, oh yeah, I know. I've I've written it like that for twenty years. W i n d o z e. So on the Google thing, is it, um, was Google ever cool? Well, Google was not trying to be cool. Um, Google was at its best when they were providing infrastructure. Like if you look at like the, the period, the Halcyon period, when Google maps, uh, was an application on iOS and neither tried to screw with the other domain, uh, Google maps just tried to be like a really fantastic data play and the, the, the maps inside iOS just tried to be a really fabulous user interface. Everyone was kind of in their lane and doing what they were best at. Um, and it was wonderful because there was no kind of cross-pollination where, where they kind of moved into doing the thing that they were bad at. Um, Google ought not to have been a consumer products company, uh, probably ever, but they had, uh, I would say probably financial motivation to try to try to be that. Um, uh, even, even in the, in the early Chrome era, like Google did a really good job because they had a clear, um, engineering mission and uh, it was the, they had a, they had a closed ended, uh, like implementation oriented goal. But as soon as Chrome was, was just a good browser, it's, it was, it went all to hell because they then started doing these kind of exploratory consumer things. Um, but without the without the wherewithal or imagination to actually do those things. Like they're, they, they stopped being their own audience. Um, mm. and all the stuff that Google makes for this, these imagined other audiences, um, are, are terrible. Like Google home is terrible. And like Android is terrible. It's a, I can't, I can't get off this after party train. As I hear you talk, it's like, <laughs> Like, and, but I think it's related because I think at some point you stop being at the party and you imagine an after party and you try to craft the after party for an audience that isn't ever going to be there. Well, yeah. Once you begin to try to engineer a phenomenon, which is fundamentally natural, um, then you're screwed. I, I mean, that's, those are all the parties you walk into and go like, oh, this is not a place I want to be. It's something you can feel, the, the sort of engineering of, of fun. Um, that's why Disneyland feels kind of creepy too. It's not a real thing that's happening. It's sort of this engineered experience, which, which was specifically designed and it's well designed, but it's not, um, like 
when, like when my daughter was really, really young, we went to Prague. Uh, she was like four months old, but I had a talk, uh, in Berlin and we were like, screw it. Let's just add a week and, and bring this little baby. We, we didn't know how to be parents. Let's just like go to Prague. We'll figure it out. And then we'll take the train up to Berlin. I'll do my talk. It'll be really fun. It was before we knew like what parenting was going to mean for us. Um, but it was this really fun experience because like in Prague is it, it, it is basically the cat, the Disneyland castle is the, is the castle in, yeah. in Prague. And they even light it the same, like, but not, not for me. Like they light it the same for them. They've been doing that, you know, since 1100. They're there, they are their own audience. Right, right. And like Charlemagne built that bridge and he just thought it should be lit this way. And they're very much like baking it for themselves. Um, and you walk through the little, little like underpass that heads toward the castle. Feels very Disneyland like to me. I mean, I'm a California kid, but like we walk through and, you know, on the left and right, rather than being a bunch of sort of shops with, uh, uh, stuff nice in them, it was just like, like drunk people in their fifties and sixties, uh, like sitting out at cafes and talking and, and, and kind of basking in this wonderful, a very genuine, the, the feel of this very genuine place, which at some point I'm sure like Walt Disney was like, I gotta meet this. I'm gonna bring this. That is so, I never knew this story. So this is freaking true. That the Disney castle isn't some creative impulse by Imagineers. They literally were in Prague and took that thing and yeah, said, we got to make, we got to make a simulation of that. Well, and it's like, it's sort of a mashup of the, the Prague castle and a couple other, you know, like, like iconic European castles. But yeah, they didn't design it from scratch. They just like went, you know. The, he took the Imagineers, uh, you know, Walt Disney took the Imagineers on some tour of Switzerland and Eastern Europe were like, oh, this is a castle, y'all. Uh, and they, they came about with the, the Sleeping Beauty castle as, as a result of that. That's so, I mean, that kind of blew my mind that I didn't, I, you know, cause they, they, that's so iconic that I, you wouldn't think that it was grafted straight out of Prague. We were so shocked that we looked it up when we were there. We were like, what the hell? Why is there the Disney castle here? Because we were bringing the opposite cultural perspective. <laughs> what did they build the Disney castle? They made it look just like the Disney castle. We were like, wait, no, no. Strike that. Turn it around. I mean, holy crap. This is truly, I, my mind is being blown by this because that, just think about how many things are like that in our lives where we have a cultural reference that we're so anchored to, we don't even know it. And we're just inferring origination where it definitely is an ode. Totally not. But I mean, like, think about, I don't know, did you ever go to Google IO in the old days? They're like, when they realized they should start having a conference. No. Probably 2015 or so. No, God, sorry. My favorite reference is all backwards. It was probably 2005 or six, a long time ago. Um, and they used to have it at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Um, and it was, which is where like Apple had their WWDC event. Like they were just doing the Apple thing uh, to try to like see if they could engage the community. Um, but it was very vibey because they were just kind of bumbling their way through it. Like they didn't have a vision for the conference and, and like, you know, like Larry Page would just kind of stand up on the stage and hoarsely croak his way through a keynote. Uh, and it was, it was real fun. Um, and, and very genuinely um 
energetic and exciting and like one year was it there clunky was, like you're, you're kind of making these faces about this was it clunky but charming yeah, oh, super clunky yeah super it was very awkward and and kind of nerdcore but in a, in a great way because it wasn't trying to be slick it wasn't trying to be something else like they had they had gotten it together to have a bunch of great posters printed and stuff um uh, and they had found themselves with enough just liquidity to like put crummy first generation Android phones under everyone's seat of the keynote and stuff. So it was, it felt very generous. If you like, like they were, they were like, welcome this world. Like we want to, we want to engage with you and we're going to meet you all the way over there. Like, like you don't have to come this way at all. Um, but, um, and now they held that same event at, um, the shoreline amphitheater, which is like a rock venue, um, like an outdoor (laughs) rock venue. And it's been completely consumed by essentially, um, you know, someone's vision of a marketing. Like uh, this idea, like I'm just shaking my head because I think of all these things that they, they, they appropriate the idea of a gathering of doers. So they take that idea of a conference, a, a collection, a, a collaboration, and then it becomes a show like this performance of doing always strikes me as odd it's like you know when i used to do improv comedy and like some people that were earlier in their journey of realizing what improv was and they they were clearly like pre-scripting their improv it's like i don't think that's what people paid for i think they want to watch you clunkily struggle to understand the words coming out of your own mouth And, and so these conferences where people are like we're earnestly figuring things out with you but not really but not really. Here are the here here are the takeaways. And we we know what you want to take away because uh, we've already printed it out, and now you don't have to remember. So you had mentioned the word generous, which we've had a couple conversations in our collaboration. Um, what what do you mean by generous when you apply it to this kind of conversation about technology and mediation and things like that? This idea came from when I was, um, I first sort of dropped into the advertising world. Um, talk about waking up on a, on a ship. Um, I had worked at Sun Microsystems and then like a startup. And then there was the dot com crash in 2000. Um, and we, some friends and I all got together and we were like, who? Who still has money? We're like, ah, advertisers. Like those, those guys are going to need to push really hard during this period. You know, like people are going to have to do a lot of advertising and they should start doing it on the web. Um, so we started this company called the Barbarian Group, um, in 2000, which I alluded to before. Um, and, and we, we realized really, really quickly that advertising on the web was not going to work the way that it worked anywhere else. So out of home, like if you buy a, billboard, people are going to drive by the billboard. It's that content is essentially push. Um, and in the world of television, you know, the, they're, they're sitting there eating their like lima beans and, and you could push advertising content to them. You could even like integrate it into you know, the, the thing. Cause you have this like sort of captured audience. Um, but the web wasn't like that at all, uh, which as, as web enthusiasts that we, we knew, uh, just innately that the, the web's model is pulp. You know, like, like people will only look at content on the, on the old internet. You know, it's 2000, 
I need to type in a URL uh, or, you know, click a link and very actively, very consciously pull that content toward myself. Um, and that we determined uh, meant that everything we, we did needed to be really, really generous. Uh, and so that you would have ample motivation to pull the content toward yourself because someone you trust would have like sent you a link and been like, this is hilarious, or this is really funny, or they're giving away a hamburger or whatever it is. Like there had to be a core of, um, gratification and, and generosity in, in the content that preceded whatever the hell the content was and, and, and probably superseded the, the whatever the content was. So we used to build a very, uh, like zany flash-based content that the goal was just to be generous and fun. Um, and then there would be sort of an ad attached to it, uh, or it would be, you would be vaguely in service of, of a brand or a campaign or something. Did you but, ever talk about conversion rates or transactional things like in any deep penetrating data sciencey way? We never did. We only followed, um, because we were our own audience, uh, at that time, we just did the thing that we knew would work. So we didn't have to get analytical. Um, like, I mean, just, I, I'm laughing cause it like, it's, it's, it's obvious, right? When you say it and you tell the story, it's like, well, if I do what I like, it's pretty obvious there's other people like me in this world. So they will like it too. So this is going to work because it worked on me. Yeah. And I think the one take down from that is that you have to find the commonalities in human experience so that you're doing things that you, that resonate with you, um, that will, uh, also resonate with other people, uh, not just people like you, um, which, which is another sort of big problem I get into with like streaming services and stuff where, where we can't, we don't have this generally accepted bar of quality. We're just getting kind of con bombarded with things like things that people like me like, um, which is my nightmare. But at the time, like it, we had the luxury in the, in the early two thousands of, of being highly representative of the internet audience, um, which we took for granted and just made shit. Um, and that worked fine. But as you know, as we've, as we've, evolved uh, as a society and as the digital citizenry are not just kind of like white boy nerds, like the content and everything, you know, like the, the concept of, of, um, generosity and what, what content is going to resonate, I think has expanded vastly. But has it gone to your point? Has it, has it moved away from just strictly content where the generosity lies, but in, into tools? Like, do you believe that there's some universal, universally generous tools that regardless of, you know, all the different ways in which people are and, and who they are, like that the tools just work. I feel like TikTok, and I'll just give away my thought. I feel like TikTok is an incredibly generous tool. It seems like a lot of different people around the world and somehow eked out some sort of committee on there that... I think it baffles so many smart business people or whatever, because they look at it, they go, I don't know what to do here. And it's like, well, welcome to humanity. 
Great. You're already doing it. Yes. So are there yeah. other tools or is TikTok our only example of a, of a generous tool? In the, no, I think the early days of like social networking, there was a ton of generosity. Like uh, when Instagram first launched, it was a very generous tool and, um, like let, let, let us make your shitty photos better and let you share them. Like, great. That's awesome. Um, and it was about sort of building community, uh, that had sort of visual affinities, like awesome. And when they started doing advertising, um, remember talking to shortly after Facebook bought them and they were like, oh, we got to start showing ads. And I was like, you're already showing ads. Like every, every post on Instagram and in that era, it was an ad. Uh, you just need to figure out how to make it work for you. But they, you know, Facebook was never good at that. Like they don't. <laughs> I mean, it's an intrigue. You're getting the, you've launched like a billion semiotic ideas in this conversation. And I'm sitting there going, but that, that idea that everything is an ad, that everything on Instagram was an ad. I start, I have exposure to that because when you work at a magazine company, magazines understand that fundamentally. Oh, every, every page, every element on a page is an ad and that's not negative. The Sears no, catalog was a catalog of ads and people loved it. Yeah. No, it's only bad if you're, if the, um, if the audience doesn't, has not pulled that content toward themselves on purpose. Um, like. Like I don't listen to a lot of podcasts because I hear the same Geico commercial over and over again. And just that one little bit throws me out of the world so much that I, I don't want to approach it. Um, God, I'm like, you can't, you know, what the podcast is about, like we can't get closer to the content of the podcast than, than car insurance that isn't offered in my state. <laughs> like, yeah, like, that's good. What the hell? Uh. Is the Geico ad on the bottom of the Berkshire Hathaway site, like offensive to you, or is that like a good placement for Geico? Um, that seems maybe better. I would at least be more likely, uh, but the Geico ads are hilarious to me because they don't like, I see a lot of them in California and you can't, you can't get it here. I mean, so I'm going to come back to this generously, but let's go down this. What happened to tech? where Geico ads are targeted to an audience that can't buy it. Is that a fundamental breakage in some technology or is some executive making that decision? It, that is a byproduct of, um, of poorly implemented ad tech. That is basically a volume game. Like all like, like, like ad tech is, um, essentially trying to just run up numbers because they're there's you know ckm or whatever you want to define it is is all so low um and they have so much opacity between what content they're actually serving and and who's paying them like generally there's those things are so dis disconnected that i don't think they're held to a particularly high standard of effectiveness the um like the era of display advertising or this idea that you made something and it was fun and people like it. And so if you want to make money with that thing, just show ads like, like that whole, that whole loop that, that was a byproduct of people not actually starting with the economic model. Um, that has led to this, this, these sort of 
monstrous, um, uh, poor implementations for, for Antec, um, in which they are showing me content I don't want and then lying about its effectiveness to the person that bought it. It's a, I mean, it's so interesting because you kind of drew a, a path through the middle of the choices I gave you. And it's like, yeah, it's weird. It's like, well, what's at fault here? It's like, how did we get here? It's like, well, we're here and now it's almost like entrenched. And we don't, it's kind of like spirit airline. Every time you're on spirit airlines, you're like, how did I get here? If, like I'm on this plane, nobody wants to be here, but we sort of have to because it's the only plane between there and here. Right. I'm having and it's like, there's no motivation for oh, spirit well, to change. Like they're yeah. like, you're here because you have to be. Great. They're like, we know you got to go to Iowa, asshole. So this is the trip. Um, take this. Let's go back to this idea of generosity. And I, I want to apply it to another industry, I guess, if we want to go there. Even though I, I don't think of these things we're talking about as distinct industries or categories, whatever. Just like with your semiotics and college websites. But obviously we're... Part of this podcast is attached to a company trying to do things in space in a very broad sense. But as we look out and see what people are doing with space, outer space, let's be very specific. Most people define as space as somewhere off this planet at some large mileage distance from here. Do you get the sense that the space industry, and take that as broadly as you want, is generous by your definition of generous? I wonder if the space industry is not sort of, uh, at least historically sort of an oxymoronic phrase, you know, like I feel like so much of the space era previously was government. Um, and we're, we're only recently in this idea where, where there is this concept of a space industry where you could have, um, I mean, SpaceX presumably is making money through launches, um, I don't see SpaceX doing much in the way of generosity, um, probably because they don't yet have to, um, and their economic model is, uh, taking vast sums of money from the government, which are slightly less vast than the sums of money it would take to have NASA do it. Um, I, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting side of, uh, of the of the problem. I, I don't know when we get to the point where regular consumers care about space and then the space industry needs to start engaging with them in a generous way. I hope that's sooner than later. So, I mean, you can, I mean, free license such that you need it and don't speak your mind, but I think you speak your mind just fine. Um, is it doomed? Will, will space industry ever be generous? Is there ever going to be motivation to be generous or is it spirit airlines all the way? Well, no, I think it will be. I think when there's a tourism aspect, um, and there's more kind of mature, um, kind of industry happening, I, I don't see why it can't encapsulate at least something that feels like hospitality. I don't know if it'll get all the way to generosity. Um, like generosity would be like lifting high school kids, weird space experiments, every, every other launch. Um, 
I, I think we're still a little ways away from that just because the, the cost and logistics are so intense. Um, but I don't but see what, why let's, let's take, let's push that. Let's push that. Let's say, let's say, let's say launches weren't necessary anymore and there was just resident infrastructure and things could be teleported or digitized or otherwise, you know, it's just there. It's just available. Yeah. Kind of like our internet is today. Let's just take that as a basis. Uh, but if we take that as a basis, we have a fundamentally like crazy thing because in, in space, my wild brain says that the, the constraint that's removed in space is that there's a lot of space. So if you, if you want to do something else somewhere else, you want to have after parties into the wee hours of the night, you can always find another space. <laughs> the party you never has to stop it's big. yeah you're never clogging anything out um and so i'm bringing it up in this thing because does the idea of generosity fundamentally shift of what a generous act would be in a business context and a technological co uh, context if the constraints are different when i was like in high school i read um neuromancer the william gibson novel Yep. Um, and it absolutely blew my mind for not the reason that it, I think blew most people's minds, but the, his, the way that he depicted space and space culture in that book, um, has stayed with me my whole life. Essentially there were dudes in orbit that just had these janky barges and were like smoking pot and, and zooming through orbit and, and playing dub music, um, as a way of life. Like they had just, they were like. No, I live up here. That's, that's what I'm doing. Um, and that, that vision, uh, I think starts to become like the shipping lanes where there's, there's a, a natural camaraderie and generosity that's folded through, um, because there's a preceding life choice. Like, like we came out here cause like we're done down there. Um, so I, and I think that's a, that's a really um, aspirational vision to, to set and maintain for whatever we do out there. Um, but we, we got to, everything has to get much cheaper and easier. Like, you know, I, I spent my twenties hoping that someone would start a space elevator project. Yeah. I was like, they did it. And then probably aren't gonna like, the, I mean, did life. they get derailed on that vision because they're like, it's expensive and I can't find 12 customers to do this. Like, so therefore it's done. I feel like nothing, nothing that gets big ever actually gets derailed like that. Meaning I think about Hollywood, you can't justify Hollywood by nope. any way that business analysts like to justify Hollywood. It makes no sense by no. any dimension of economic analysis. But it works. <laughs> So why can't everything work that way? Am I an Not insane person for thinking that? No, if in the late seventies, they had just built a space elevator and by 1986, like, you know, lifting things into space was, was no big deal. I like think how different our lives and culture and everything would be now. Um, and, and how many sort of problems and cultural things could, could be deflected and deferred up to to like workflows that we can't even imagine. Like I, I we're still trying to, I, you know, like I'd love to get, a like a shielded raspberry Pi in orbit at some point in the next couple of years. Cause I want to see how bad images get degraded by cosmic rays and stuff out there. But like 
what a small vision. Like, wouldn't it be great if I could just like pop up there on a Tuesday for dinner? I mean, yes. And then I'm just, I guess, I guess it's stuck on because I'm like, I, I, music, I can always go back to music because I just find it fascinating. It's like, I feel like, the, forget the music industry. Let's just talk about musicians and instrumentalists and people like that. I feel like people who make music as a way of life have no problem like going wherever their creative impulse takes them. They absorb technology with no worry about whether they're being outsourced. They're just like, oh, you you can hit the side of a computer and that makes this sound. Let's fucking roll. Yeah. And so, but I'm just baffled why the idea of of music being extended to some weird space instrumentation hasn't been like seriously considered by a bunch of people. And yeah, it's like, the, I, and I, it sounds dumb or stumped, like we'd be stumped. I'm sure people will listen to this and go, well, but what is he saying? I go, well, what's a synthesizer? What the hell is a radio? Everything you do is effectively, you know, with media is affected by space. There's just white noise being beamed down from the beginning of the universe that you use for everything that is your life. But totally. if I say, hey, why don't we just have a more direct relationship with that? People go, well, this is weird, man. I guess you're a podcaster, but not a serious business person. <laughs> We're not ready. So like, if go back to the space elevator thing, is it does it take just a flat out act of generosity to point and say, I'm putting an elevator there and it's going to go to space. And when people go, why? You just say, because it's cool. It's a space elevator. I think that's one way to go, um, but I hate dropping into the loop of depending on philanthropic acts by individuals. Like that's a, like space elevator is a job for government. That's what government ought to be working on. Like big, dreamy infrastructure projects. Let's go to the moon. Like why? Because we can't. You know, like we do. Why are you bothering me with the why part? Like. Do you realize that we could go to the moon? What the hell? Of course we're doing that. Like the sort of Kennedy era, uh, like vision of, of, of pulling together and doing these large scale civic projects for the, for the essential daily benefit of all, um, that that's really what government should be doing. I, I mean, we can't hold our breath for SpaceX to get it together, to work on a space elevator someday. Um, because they are a private company or a public company now, but they, they, they're, uh, beholden to profitability and modeling, um, and great things can't happen that way. So we, we, in a previous episode, I spoke to a scholar, a philosopher that talked about this and that some of the challenge of the government leading space work is that they, in some ways they're corrupted by these colonialist tendencies, and I don't want to over-intellectualize on this, but that in a lot of ways, it, what these things aren't sold to people as what you just said, a generous thing to improve our lives. They're almost always sold when you look at it as some weird, the war machine, you know, that frankly, the Christian war machine must continue. Well, that's, yeah, that's a byproduct of the Reagan era. I mean, like government spending could only be justified if it was led to world domination. And so, it's, and so I think it's, like, how do we, how do we 
and I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than to think you, you're, you've been thinking about a lot of things in a lot of different areas and you've been unafraid. My assessment is unafraid to go poke the bear in a lot of different industries. And when the bear got too cranky, you're like, that's fine. There's other things over here. I'll just, I'll just go hang out with this group. Um, but I feel like space is one of these things where people are really afraid to poke the bear. There's something yeah. about it where they're like, it's, it's not for me to poke. I, I have no say in this. This is, this is somehow bigger than me as an individual. I'm not allowed to play there. Yeah. That's, I, that's a cultural thing that probably is informed by, that's probably a, an accidental byproduct of, of making astronauts heroes. Um, uh, we're, uh, we work with May Jemison, um, and we're working on a project called the hundred year starship, which is, it started as a DARPA thing. Um, and her, her whole thing there is, is like, let's take the next hundred years and get humanity ready to do interstellar travel, um, which I think is the right amount of time and, uh, the right amount of, um, like sort of cultural intent, uh, like it's, it's can't like NASA can't do this. Like NASA can, can participate and the ESA can participate. Like, but we need hands for everybody if we're going to do this and we have to keep reminding ourselves why. That's good. Uh, let me maybe wind us towards a close here, um, to mention your current company is the new computer corporation. Yes. Why did you name it the new computer corporation? Aren't all uh, computer uh, uh, companies working on new computers? We wanted to invoke like what, um, like the new school and new museum do, uh, which is to, uh, do something that might be bananas, but, um, from, uh, an external kind of brand perspective is immediately peer to all the other ones. Um, which is this kind of top-down uh, branding rather than bottom-up. So we don't want to um, start from from scratch and, and claw our way up to earning your trust. Like we're just starting immediately peer to the other computer corporations. Um, and this is the new one. Is that is that somehow radical or bold what you're saying? Or is that like so many things you said on this? It's just kind of like, look, it's just kind of a fact. They, well, it's another computer corporation another is, yeah. yeah like, like, I don't, um, I always come into everything sideways. So I, I have no interest in working my way up from the bottom. I'd much rather work from the top down or the side over. Um, and this, we knew that the things we we're going to work on in this company would span a lot of traditional computer workflows, but we're definitely going to approach them in a different way. Um, and every other attempt to sort of name what it was, uh, seemed to immediately fall short. So, so this, this was broad enough and also, uh, kind of cheeky enough to, to accommodate and, and, and contain the thing that I think we're talking about. I've, uh, I, I like it personally, such that my opinion matters because it's just very direct. I've always appreciated how, appreciated how direct you are. Yeah. Nobody and ever so asked that, what we do. What do you do? Yeah, they hear the name, they're like, oh, you must do something with computers. And for 99.8% of people, that's it. It's like you can either say it's with computers or we do something now. 
And if it's new computer, it's great. It's in the pocket. Yeah. Um, Both can. Yeah, we can do A, B, or a combination. So a very direct question to end this. Are you happy with how your life has turned out? Oh, yeah. An easy one, huh? Yeah. I am largely happy uh, with how everything turned out. Um, I am sort of over 50, and so my relationship with my life is fundamentally changed. I don't know what happened at 50, but it definitely shifted. Uh, I almost I almost started to view my own life in retrospect uh, in a way that I never, ever, ever would have um, in my younger life. Um, but uh, I am the happiest when the results of my activities are joy and inspiration. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to make sure that Everything meets that bar, um, and uh, everybody still has food. I ask it because I, I, this is an opportunity for me to publicly declare my appreciation for you. Oh, because without hey. without meeting you, I, it, you know the the weird windy road that led to this moment where I'm recording a podcast <laughs> talking about space and AI and VR. But uh, for people listening, like. Aubrey and his partner Ben and I talking just led me back back into a thing I didn't know I wanted to be doing and it actually was the genesis of Titan Space was just our conversations and taking taking this moment seriously that I that I think I would have missed if I oh, had been told hey, to yeah. consider AI and music again yeah, I would never <laughs> be, be doing this and so oh, yeah, that's I, great. yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I view you as having uh, reconnected with your true calling. Appreciate it. So we've gotten somewhere, and thank goodness, neither one of us are on a Spirit Airlines flight right now. Um, but I thank you for joining. You can come anytime you you want to talk or hype something or whatever. Hopefully, we'll we'll be good about being generous getting getting this out with no expectation but we carry on what you and I both want to do which is inspire people to do follow follow their bliss on this stuff and you know that everybody's part of building whatever the internet and space and metaverse or whatever everybody's doing we're all part of it just get involved yeah roll up your sleeves I love it thanks, thanks for having me yeah You've been listening to From There to Here, a podcast for space hackers. It's hosted by Russell Fultz Smith and produced by Titan Space. New episodes are released on a regular cadence on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and syndicated out to all your favorite services across the global terrestrial network. So please subscribe to listen in on discussions about the new space economy from a uniquely human perspective. And visit titanspace.co for more information about how you can start hacking in space immediately. Online versions of Titan Space's experimentation software are available at no charge. That's titanspace.co. Thank you to this episode's guest, the Titan Space crew and extended family. It's time to change how we share space. See ya, space hacker. Titan Space. Get in the box!